Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. What kind of person are you? What kind of person are you? In many ways, there are two kinds of people in this world. When someone asks you, I've got some good news and some bad news, what do you want to hear first? I mean, it's kind of only, the only two options to answer that question. You're either the kind of person that wants the good news first, or you're the kind of person who wants the bad news first. Now, I'm not exactly sure what your answer to that question tells us. I don't, I don't know what that is, but I think it tells us something. Like, it, like I said, I don't know what, but something in there. I know for me, I'm the kind of person that likes to hear the bad news first and then the good news. I want to hear the bad, get that, get that out of the way, right? Just, just tell me the bad stuff and then let's talk about the good stuff. Right? I don't want to dwell on the bad stuff. I don't want to dwell on all that. I want to dwell on the good stuff, the happy stuff, the nice things. And so what we do is we answer that question. As we read through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, in many ways, the bad news comes first. Because the Old Testament is a catalog of the failures of the people of God. I mean, just think through those major characters, those stories that even show up in children's Bible. Adam and Eve, well, that didn't work out so well, right? They had one job. Adam and Eve, you have one job. Don't eat from that tree. Well, like like most of our favorite football team's kickers, they can't even do their one job. But Noah, Noah was a good guy. Noah's a good guy, right? Except for the part where as soon as he gets out of the ark, the first thing that he plants is a vineyard and the first harvest of grapes he can, he puts them in the fermenter and as soon as that's ready, he gets blackout drunk. Okay, all right. So maybe Noah's, wait, wait. What about, what about Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham and I'm one of them. So are you. Surely this guy is the guy that's got it together, Right? except for the part where Abraham lied about Sarah being his sister. Twice. Two times. What about David? Well, you know, fist and murderer. What about Jacob? Maybe Jacob, Abraham's grandson. Well, his name means shady, and his life was shady. He spent half of his life trying to defraud his uncle. And again, and again, and again, these individuals failed. But it wasn't just the individuals that failed. It was the people of Israel as a whole. I mean, God rescues them from slavery in Egypt. And as he rescues them from slavery in Egypt, they're going through the desert and he's providing manna for them every day. And what do the people of Israel start doing? They start complaining about not having garlic. It's true. I mean, that is literally what they said. Yeah, okay, so we were slaves back in Egypt, but at least we had garlic. Now, I love garlic as much as the next person, but probably not enough to make me forget about the other part. And then God gives the people of Israel judges to rule over them. 
And the people of Israel say, nah, we, re- we would rather have a king. We want a king. All of this leads to sort of the climax of the Old Testament, where again and again and again, God has called his people back to them, to himself. God has taken them back time after time after they have run after so many other gods, more gods than we can count. Time and time again, he has taken him back. And time and time again, the people choose anything but Yahweh. This God that is literally just a pole that wants me to sacrifice my children seems better than the God that rescued us from Egypt. Again and again and again. And so, at the height of the Old Testament, he sends the people of God into exile. He sends them away from the promised land. Now, this is a big deal. I mean, the the whole story of, of Genesis and Exodus and the whole first part of the Bible was getting the people of God, getting the people of Israel into the promised land. And it doesn't take them 500 years before God says, you gotta go. I'm sending you out. You're going to Babylon. You're going to Persia. You're getting out of the promised land. And so enters Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the last prophets as the people of God were being sent into exile. He, he wrote and he wept and he welled. What I mean by weld is he was thrown into a well at some point and was like preaching up out of the well, um, which even though this is quite a high angle for us right now, still not as bad as having to preach from inside of a well, I think. But Jeremiah prophesied as the people were being sent out into exile, as they were being deported. And he said this, he said, listen, this is not going to be forever. This is not going to be forever. This is going to be for 70 years. But there was a question that was probably ringing in the people of Israel's ears. A question that maybe you sort of call to mind right now. Because God describes the language of sending the people into exile as the language of divorce. They've broken God's covenant. In fact, the book of Hosea shows this when God tells Hosea to go and marry a woman named Gomer, which would have been hard enough as it was. But then Gomer's occupation um, was to walk around in the evenings, if you catch my drift, adults. God sends them away into exile, but what about after that? What about after those 70 years? What is God going to do? How is God going to reconcile with his people? And what are God's people going to do? Are they going to run to him? Or are they going to hide? I mean, when we mess up, what do we do? Do we run to God or do we hide? When we blow it, when we sin, when we disobey, our natural reaction is to hide from God. I mean, think about the story of Adam and Eve. What did they do? They ate from the tree. As soon as they did, they hear God walking. And what do they do? They hide. Right? They, they, they try to hide 
from the all-knowing, all-seeing God of the universe, maybe some bushes will help. And as foolish as that sounds, we do the same thing. When we sin and disobey, our natural reaction is to run from God, to run further away. But what God is doing for the people of Israel in Jeremiah and what God is doing for us is inviting us into a new way of life, into a new way of thinking, a new way of relating to him. And so that's what we're gonna see this morning. When we sin, when we disobey, when we blow it, we don't need to run from God, but we're called into something new. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to read just three verses, verses 31 to 34. I guess that's four verses. I've never been very good at math. And as we do, I'd like you to stand with me as I read it. Jeremiah speaks to the people of Israel as they are going off to exile. And he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they, all, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. City Church is the word of God, written nearly 2,500 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So God answers the question. He answers the question of after the exile, what's he going to do? After the people of Israel spend 70 years in Babylon and in Persia, after they are sent away, what is God going to do after the exile? He's going to give the people a new covenant. He's going to renew his vows to them. This doesn't mean that the old covenant is wiped out but rather this new covenant that he is giving them is, it's a distillation. It is a, a intensification of the covenants that he has made with them already. Perhaps a cooking analogy would do here. Uh, one of my favorite things to make with any sort of red meat with, with a steak or with lamb is a, is a demi-glaze sauce. And a demi-glaze sauce is great because it's only got four ingredients. All it is, is butter, a shallot, some stock, and some wine. You just kind of throw all that stuff in there. But here's the problem. When you throw all that stuff in there at the beginning, it's not very tasty. It tastes like whiny hot water, like with a smack of meat. It's not great. But what happens as it sits on your stove, as it gets thicker and thicker and thicker, is those flavors all start 
to get tighter and tighter together. And you go from what starts as this soupy, onion, water stuff to this glazy sauce that's savory, has umami, has all this flavor as all of that sort of gets tighter and tighter in together. That's what the new covenant is. The new covenant takes all of the things that God has been saying through the Old Testament, all of these themes that God has been weaving together through the stories of Moses and the stories of David, the stories of all of God's people, and those things are brought together in this beautiful, rich, new covenant that is the same ingredients as the old one, but now just brought in together. And how does that work? What is God going to do with this new covenant, with this rich, new, denser thing that he's doing? Well, the first thing he says is, I'm going to write the law on your hearts. Not on the tablets of stone. Not on the tablets of stone like I did with Moses. Rather, I'm going to write the law on your hearts. This is reminding us and showing us That Christianity is not about external obedience. It's not about keeping the laws, doing the right thing. It's it's easy and honestly a lazy take to say that Christianity is just a list of do's and don'ts. It's not. If, If that was the case, God would have just sort of beamed the Ten Commandments down and said like, good luck with all that. I'll see you at judgment and we'll see what happens, right? But God doesn't do that. God doesn't just plop the Ten Commandments down in places and say, be more Ten Commandment-y. Rather, God wants our heart. God wants our hearts to be what motivates our actions. So it's not just about the things that we do, but more so is about the way that our heart is changed the way that our heart is turned towards God. And when Jeremiah writes about the new covenant, he is saying exactly that. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there are a lot of bad takes about Christianity. There are a lot of bad ideas about what Christianity actually teaches. But probably the worst one is the idea that this is just a list of do's and don'ts. That church is just a place for the people who scored well on the the moral SATs to go to. That's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not a list of rules. Rather, Christianity is a chance for us to have God, the God of the universe, our creator, to write his very words and his very law on our hearts. Not in our actions, Not just with the things that we do, but what goes on inside of us. Because, listen, we can do a lot of the right things and have a lot of wrong stuff going on. Uh, If you've been married for more than three weeks, you know this to be true. My wife can take out the trash, and I can, or my wife can ask me to take out the trash, and I can take out the trash with good things going on in my heart, or I can take out the trash with a lot of bad things going on in my heart. The action could stay the same. It's not about, did I I move the bag from my little trash can 
to the big trash can in the alley. It's not about doing the thing. What's going on in here matters way more. Because if the whole time I'm doing it, hey, don't take out the trash. Don't you know that the game is on? Right? The bag still goes from the little can to the big can. But I'm not doing the right thing. God wants our heart. God wants us to not just do the right thing, to be external rule keepers. The new covenant describes God as writing the law on our heart. And in elsewhere, in Ezekiel, he says not only that, but he's going to give us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. God literally, when we turn to him, changes us from the inside out. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not just something that's skin deep. In fact, if your Christianity is just skin deep, it's not Christianity at all. It's not about just rule keeping, rather about God making our hearts new. And he promises to do that here in Jeremiah through the new covenant. But not only that, the new covenant also gives us a new sort of equality. Did you catch that? No longer will you have to say to your neighbor, know the Lord, because each one will know the Lord. What does that mean? What is that all about? In the Old Testament, the only people that had access to the holy place of the temple were the priest. And the only person that had access to the holy of holies, the like the secret room inside the secret room inside the secret room, like the three layers deep spot, the only person who had access to that was one of the high priests for the year. But something unique happened on the day that Jesus died. In the very moment where Jesus died, the curtain that hung, that hid that holy place from the rest of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. All of us, if we're in Christ, all of us, if we are trusting in him, have access to God. We can take all of our cares and concerns to him. In the new covenant, we are all shaped by the story of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. And the new covenant promises that that is something for all of us. But how does this all happen? How does God accomplish this new heart? How does God accomplish this new access? The very last part of what Jeremiah promises about the new covenant tells us exactly how. It tells us that God forgives us and God remembers our sins no more, which is significant because it doesn't take long for all of us to think of the ways that we have broken God's covenant. We even look at the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve not just happened, but it happens again and again in our lives, doesn't it? How many of you have ever come to a point where you kind of look around and go, okay, I could do this, I know it's wrong, or I could not do this. Yeah, I'm going to do the wrong thing. How many of us face decisions on a daily basis and say, you know what, I'm going to pick the sin one. That sounds like more fun. That sounds more comforting. It'll be more secure if I go in that direction. 
I say that because I know what my own heart is like. I do this all the time. In the story of Adam and Eve, I'm much like Adam, quiet, not willing to say anything. You know, you know, she is Eve, and she is my wife, and God did give her to me. And so I don't want to like mess that up by telling her not to eat that fruit. So I'm just going to chill. And when she offers it to me, I guess I'll eat it too, because like, you know, I don't want us to be like on different teams. I, I shy away from it. I, I don't always say what I know I need to say. You don't have to search your heart long to find the ways that you've sinned, the ways that you've hurt others. But the beauty of this promise is this, that the all-knowing God, the God that knows what holds protons and neutrons together, the God who spun the millions and billions of universes out from his hands with just the whisper of his word, the God that created everything from large to small, who knows everything, willingly chooses to forget. The God who knows everything chooses not to remember my sins and your sins. That is astonishing that God would take that sort of step of not remembering intentionally. God gives us this covenant. God says this is who we are. He takes away a heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh and writes his law on it. He gives us access. He forgives our sins. He remembers them no more. Okay, great. That's neat. The new covenant's a nice little thing that we find in Jeremiah and Hebrews, and Jesus talks about it. But what does that mean for me, Justin? It's Christmas week. I'm very busy. There are a lot of things going on. My family has had to make really hard decisions about what to do this Christmas. We've had to make awkward decisions about where we're going to go or not going to go. My kids are already running wild. One of them ate an entire gingerbread house. There's just candy everywhere. I'm trying to parent in the midst of candy apocalypse. What does the new covenant have to do with that? What does the new covenant have to do with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? What does the new covenant have to do with all of the, the pressures that I'm feeling at work because of the end of the year? Well, first, because we have the law of God written on our hearts, we have a new way of relating to God. We, we are, in a way, driven by his forgiveness, not by the performance of our righteousness. Think about that. Because the law of God is written on our hearts, we're not driven by the performance of our righteousness, by doing the right thing. Now, what's interesting is our culture has gotten used to, both inside and outside the church in its unique ways, our culture has become very good at performance righteousness. Think about it. Don't shop at this store. That's run by bad people. Don't give your money 
to these people. There's a line in a song by the band Spanish Love Songs that says, I can't even get my coffee in the morning without worrying that I'm making another millionaire into a billionaire. Doesn't that summarize sort of the way that we think? We're constantly bombarded with, don't shop at a big store, it's bad. But don't shop at certain little stores because the people who own those little stores are problematic. Don't, you want to talk about performative righteousness? You want to talk about how this works? Start a conversation with somebody with this question. Who'd you vote for? That question, that question just made the eyes that I can see above masks of so many of you guys, like wince, like flinch, like oof. Why? Because if somebody asks you that question, you have a 45% chance of one direction or the other of making them very angry. Now, is it because we want to have a nuanced discussion of something? No. We want to make sure that you're performing your righteousness like I'm performing my righteousness. Our culture has accustomed us that it doesn't matter what's in our hearts. All that matters is the thing that you do. But God is inviting us past that. God is inviting us past this sense that we have to perform and do the right things. We have to shop at the right stores and have the right signs in our yard. We have to post the proper things on social media. God is inviting us past that into a story of, yes, thoughtfulness about how and where we shop and who and what we support. Thoughtfulness about all that, but not just condemnation. God is inviting us into a story of failure and redemption, of something more, of not just a list of do's and don'ts. Don't vote for that person. Do vote for this person. Don't shop there. Do shop here. Don't do this Christmas holiday tradition. Do that holiday Christmas tradition. He's inviting us to rehearse again and again the story of redemption that's written on every one of our hearts for those of us who are Christians, which changes the way that we approach this week. But, but not only that, This covenant, if you notice, is not given to a person. And it's not given to us as individuals. This is given to the community, the people of Israel. Because God is always about creating a unique covenant community of people together. Individualism is not in the language of the Bible. The language of the new covenant here, the language of the new covenant that Jesus picks up the night before he's betrayed, the language of the new covenant where where the writer of Hebrews quotes this entire passage verbatim, all of that is always collective. Because part of what the gospel does is calls you and I into a new sort of family, a new sort of community. A community based on these stories of yes, sin, but more so redemption. Now that's hard. That's hard because that means that we're in community with the people that we struggle with. That means that we are united through Christ to people that have hurt us. 